Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. I wanted to start out by just asking a fairly simple question. Over the weekend, we saw George W. Bush go to the Lincoln Memorial on Fox News. He did a two hour rally on Fox News said, everything's good. Everything's happy. Uh, we're going to you know, put this all back together. Don't worry. Uh, vote for me. All this kind of stuff. And uh, he said he'd been treated worse than Lincoln. All right. Um, ask Mary Todd Lincoln about that. And at the same time, over the weekend, George W. Bush put out a little short three, four minute video about how we all need to come together. This is a time for national unity. Just like he did after 9-11, you'll recall. He's lied us into two wars that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Afghans and Iraqis. Over 15,000 dead Americans, 7,000 of them troops, 8,000 plus of them contractors. The two wars that he lied us into then spilled over into other regions. And now we've got a civil war going on in Syria. You've got a military crackdown in Egypt. Uh, with al-Sisi, uh, you know, torturing and murdering people. Libya is a, is a screaming, flaming mess. I suppose you could throw some of that back into the Obama administration. But, you know, step by step, right across the Middle East, uh, George W. Bush is, well, actually, no, the Obama administration came after George W. Bush. Bush was the one who set up this whole deconstruction of the Middle East, the destruction of the Middle East. So we've got this NPR documentary now that's coming out about George W. Bush. And this recent clip where he's calling for national unity, and it, it appears as a full court press on to try to clean up his legacy. So I think it's time to ask the question, which president has done more harm to America, George W. Bush or Donald Trump? I mean, just consider Bush left over 52,000 Americans with shattered bodies, an epidemic of suicide and PTSD that continues to this day. And Bush had been planning this for a while. Back in 1999, he told Mickey Herskowitz, who was the, uh, the guy that his family hired to ghostwrite his autobiography, A Charge to Keep, 
This is what Bush told Herskowitz had recorded over 100 hours of audio tape of interviews with George W. in preparation for the writing of the first draft of his autobiography, of, of Bush's autobiography. And this is one of the things that Bush told Mickey Herskowitz. Keep in mind, 1999, this was back when everybody thought in 2000, Jeb Bush was going to be the guy running for president. Right? But Bush and Rove had been planning this thing. And this is what Bush said to Mickey Herskowitz. He says, one of the keys to be seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait and he wasted it. By wasted, of course, Bush means that he had a war that lasted only 100 hours, the three-day war. He should have had a war that ran all the way up till, you know, the election. Anyhow, back to Bush's quote. If I have a chance to invade, George W. Bush told Mickey Herskowitz in 1999, if I have a chance to invade, if I had that much political capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I wanted to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. And you'll recall right after he got reelected in 2000, January of 2005, George W. Bush, sure enough, he had run for Congress in Texas. He lost, but it was back in 78, I believe it was. He ran on the platform of ending Social Security, just moving it all over to the banks in New York and making it a voluntary system, privatizing Social Security. And he lost. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And so in 2005, after he had all this political capital from winning a war in Iraq, mission accomplished, remember that? He started traveling around the country. He visited about 15 or 20 cities, making a sales pitch for doing away with Social Security. And weirdly, every place he went and gave this sales pitch, his popularity ratings went down rather than up. And finally, he just gave up on it. And at the end of 2005, he said, okay, screw that, and uh, decided not to do it. So that's Bush. He ruined America's reputation around the world with torture, with extrajudicial murders, with Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, with the CIA destroying all the video of those tortures. He ruined our reputation by tearing us apart, by, you know, initially saying, well, Muslims aren't so bad, and then attacking two Muslim countries within a re-election campaign in 2005 that was nakedly homophobic coming out you know, against gay marriage and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it just, this guy ruined this country, George W. Bush. And then, to top it all off, in the eight years that he was president, he deregulated the banks and didn't enforce the existing regulations against the banks. And so, guess what happens? The banks ripped us all off. People like Steve Mnuchin, throwing people out of their homes, thousands of them, when Steve Mnuchin was a banker in California, and George W. Bush was responsible for the second greatest crash, you know, only second to the Great Depression of the 1930s. So then, you know, eight years later, we get another Republican president, Donald Trump, and now we're on track to a minimum of 100,000 Americans dead. And there are reports now, the New York Times is reporting, and this is pretty shocking stuff, Coronavirus update, Trump administration models predict near doubling of daily death toll by June. Projections from an internal report, they're, they're keeping this a secret, right? But it leaked to the New York Times. Projections from an internal report show that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention forecast about 200,000 new cases every day by the end of the month. That's the end of the month of May which means 3,000 daily deaths by the end of May, 
3,000 people dying every day, that's 90,000 people a month. And if we keep at that rate, as Trump is opening up and red state governors are opening up red states like crazy right now, the fastest growing, if you look at red states versus blue states, in blue states, you've got the coronavirus infections growing at slightly greater than 100%. The R is slightly, R naught is slightly more than one, 1.1 more or less, which is still bad. It means the, uh, the pandemic is expanding. But in the red state, you know, every one person infects 1.1 other people. But in the red states, it's running 1.4, 1.5. So who was the worst president, George W. Bush or Donald Trump? Who did more damage to our country? I guess, that, you know, we can't say the verdict is in because Donald Trump still has nine more months to go until January 20th when he leaves office. You know, he could do a mind-boggling amount of damage between now and then, and frankly, I think he will. But who do you think did the most damage to America? Who was the worst president? Trump's hatred, his racism, his xenophobia, his damage to international relations, his pulling us out of the climate talks? Or George W. Bush with torture, extrajudicial murder, passing the Patriot Act, spying on Americans. Remember Ed Snowden, you know, revealed all that stuff to us. Who gets your vote as worst president? I got to tell you about this is amazing. Joe Biden. I don't know why this isn't like this wasn't big news all over the all over the media this weekend. Uh, Joe Biden co-authored a an op-ed over the weekend about Trump. And his co-author was Elizabeth Warren. The Miami Herald published a, an op-ed this weekend. And I'm guessing it was published in other newspapers around the country. I'm kind of saddened it wasn't in the Times or the Post, but maybe the idea was if we put it in the New York Times or the Washington Post, it'll be perceived as an endorsement by Joe Biden of Elizabeth Warren. But Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren wrote this op-ed together, which is, uh, you know, pretty friggin' amazing. They write... When Vice President Joe Biden ran, well, actually, let me, let me, both of us have served in Congress overseeing the executive branch. We have also both served in the executive branch and answered to independent oversight. Take it from us. This is Biden and Warren. Take it from us. Oversight is vital to an effective democracy and a fair economy, and it's a threat only if you have something to hide. When Vice President Joe Biden ran implementation of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2009, he invited relevant inspectors general to scrutinize his work. In 2010, they concluded that a remarkable 99.8% of awards were free of any hint of fraud, waste, or abuse. And Senator Elizabeth Warren not only led the oversight panel for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, but she also set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2010, where she maintained a strong working relationship with multiple inspectors general who gave her high marks for her work. They start the whole thing out. 64,000 dead, 30 million people out of work, small businesses collapsing, communities of color hit exceptionally hard. Even the most ideological conservatives have been forced to acknowledge that government is an essential part of the COVID-19 solution. Biden and Warren. Who would you like to see as Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee? My favorite is Warren. I think increasingly my second favorite is Kamala Harris and my third favorite is Stacey Abrams. But that's just my list. Who's on your list? I'd like to know that. Okay, some more stories about life in Trump land. This is just breathtaking. This was posted, uh, Gibraltar 72 posted this over on Democratic Underground on Sunday at 8 o'clock last night. 
My daughter called in today to check in. A sister-in-law works at Menards. Menards is a kind of a department store chain in Michigan. Walmart kind of store, only smaller. Uh, but I won't say where. Yesterday, a female employee was posted at the entrance. She told a man who was carrying a gun he could not come in without a mask. He put his hand on his gun and said no effing C-word was going to tell him what to do. She keyed her walkie and several employees came to her aid. She informed the manager she wasn't going to put her life on the line for Menards. He said, I don't expect you to. And within an hour, they had armed security on the door. These, quote, fine people, Donald Trump's fine people are effing nuts. And then it gets even weirder or grimmer, as the case may be. This is from a story from ABC TV Channel 12, an ABC affiliate in Flint, WJRT. A security guard, this is the Family Dollar Store, and this is from the state police. At the Family Dollar Store, the security officer at the front door asked a woman to put a mask on before she could come in. She spit in his face, then came back later with her dad and shot him in the head. This is a quote from the local ABC 12 television station. They said a man shot a 43-year-old security guard in the head near the doorway of the store before running off. Murdered this guy. This guy has leaves behind a wife and eight children. Shot in the head for asking this Fox News watching, presumably, woman to put a face mask on. This is how bad it's gotten. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Tom Harvin here with you. Tip of the hat to uh, all the great folks, uh, Midwestern folks on Twitter who pointed out to me that Menards is more like Home Depot than Walmart. My apologies. You know, we have a fastidious commitment to the truth and accuracy on this program. And I appreciate you guys uh, sharing that with us or with me, actually. I didn't know. I've never been in a Menards store. I've heard reference to them. And, you know, what I've heard from my family in Michigan caused me to assume that A, it was a Michigan chain and B, it was like Walmart. I was wrong. It's uh, based out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and is more like Home Depot. David Sirota tweeting about George Bush. Back to my original question, who is worse, George Bush or Donald Trump? He says, uh, George Bush was one of the most dishonorable, indecent, and inhumane presidents in the history of our country. His tenure ended with an economic meltdown whose fuse was lit by his administration's financial deregulation and lax enforcement. In Hurricane Katrina, his incompetence and personnel decisions effectively allowed a city to drown His obedient shilling for the oil and gas industry played a pivotal role in locking in a climate cataclysm that could kill millions. His scorched earth re-election campaign demonized gay marriage. He went AWOL for a whole year, as Dan Rather pointed out, something that during time of war is an execution offense. It's called desertion. But, you know, somehow we got past that and he got to become president. I mean, that came out in 2000 during the campaign. And he, of course, tried to turn Social Security over to the billionaires. New news about Trump's internal numbers. Now, their new model says, you know, we may have a million people dead, but they also didn't believe their own pandemic experts. This is a piece in The New York Times that's absolutely breathtaking. Just, you know, laying out this whole thing about it's titled 34 Days of Pandemic Inside Trump's Desperate Attempts to Reopen America. Kevin Hassett who is uh, the former chair of his Council of Economic Advisors, a guy who has no background in infectious disease, threw out the CDC's model and created his own model that they used in the White House through the month of April, which said that they would pe- the deaths would peak at 60,000 in April, and that would be the end of it. They're apparently still using that model. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Except maybe not. Now we've got this secret model that just got leaked to the New York Times showing, you know, 3,000 deaths a day going forward. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to share with you and your listeners about an event that took place in San Francisco on Friday. There was a car caravan. That means people got in their cars and then would write on poster paper and so forth and put it and tape it to their cars issues about uh, PPE or uh, maybe uh, the homeless situation in San Francisco, uh, how the uh, epidemic has hit the African-American community. And so people would follow each other honking their horns. And uh, there was about 500 or 600 people who showed up. 
And so wow. other people who were not part of the caravan would honk and, you know, give their But support. they weren't funded by the billionaires and they weren't promoting a right wing point of view. So this did not make the, uh, <laughs> the network news, I'm guessing. Right? You got you, you were ahead of me, Tom. Exactly. There were 17 people who were on the sidewalk, many without masks, protesting that the state should be that Newsom should open up the state of California to recreation business and so forth. Well, that night, I, on purpose, I went and looked at every local news channel. I usually don't do that, but I recorded every um, news channel, and every one of them covered the 17 people, although, of course, they didn't say there were just 17. They covered that. They didn't make one mention or show one image of the car caravan. It was a, it was a yeah. non-event. And, you know, I've you know, traveled all over the country for, I've been to at least 100 protests since the inauguration of Trump. And this kind of thing has happened in, you know, in, in various places. And I'm, I'm not talking about like 20 people showing up to protest against Trump. I'm talking about 500, 600 people. And it's a non-event. You know, nobody right. knows. And then you talk to other people and say, why aren't people going onto the streets and protesting against Trump? Well, well, they they are. But the corporate mm-hmm. media doesn't think it's uh, news. Yeah, so I just wanted it's this to hear bizarre. That yeah, it's this bizarre thinking in newsrooms, and I, I, you know, I encountered this back in the in the late '60s, actually, when I was working when I was doing news at WITL, that if somebody is protesting, if somebody is is supportive of good works, shall we say, they largely get ignored because, yeah, everybody likes good things, right? Everybody wants to support positive things. But if somebody's out promoting something negative, you know, the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, or whatever, or basically if it's a right-wing cause, it gets really well covered. It just gets enormous coverage. And the phrase that they use in the newsrooms is man bites dog, right? When a dog bites a man, it's not news. It happens all the time. But if a man bites a dog, that's unusual. That's the news. And so the way that they're thinking is that the people who are supportive of Governor Newsom, well, that's most of the state. You know, the, the opinion polls show, you know, 70, 80 percent of people, Republican, Democrat, right across the board, they all, they're all supportive of what Governor Newsom is doing in California. But there's this two or three percent crackpot right wing fringe, maybe larger than that, maybe 10 or 15 percent, who not only don't support him, but actively oppose him. And that's the the man biting the dog. And that's that's how they're thinking of it. I'm not making excuses for them, but, you know, I've, I've worked in these newsrooms and I can tell you it's more that than right wing bias. But I'm suspecting there's a good chunk of right wing bias in there as well. So excellent. Thank you, Jerry. Good to hear from you. Tyrone in Chicago. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Tom, I want to ask you a question. Why is it that Sean Henry always used to say President Obama lied, but Donald Trump never tell a lie to Sean Henry? Why is yeah. he still on the TV and he's the biggest liar and biggest hypocrite? Why he don't never tell us the truth, Tom? Why he don't never tell the truth? Yeah, well, you know, he's working for a grumpy right-wing billionaire, Rupert Murdoch, and now his son, Lachlan. And the Murdoch empire, the Murdoch media, has never had a commitment to truth uh, in Australia, as Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, called them a cancer on Australian democracy in the United Kingdom, you know, where they were wiretapping uh, Princess Diana's, uh, as I recall, folks inside the royal palace and whatnot. And here, I mean, they just, they have no commitment to the truth. Their commitment is to whatever, you know, best satisfies the billionaires. Sadly, full stop. Ari in uh, Eureka, California, listening on KGOE. Hey, Ari, what's up? 
I'm going to go with Trump because he doesn't have access to credible people to lie for him, like Colin Powell. So he's had to actually destroy the truth. And when that wasn't working, then he had to destroy the press. I'm really torn on this one, Ari. I mean, my inclination is to say that George Bush was the worst president because he came into office intending to get us into a war. He announced that intention two years before he was sworn in. He followed through on it. People say, oh, it was Cheney. I don't think so. I think it was the both of them. They were both oil executives. And he sanctioned torture. I'll go you one further. The worst president was Al Gore for conceding before he should have. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. And John Kerry, too. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. we had John Edwards on this program the day after, or a couple days after, maybe it was, John Kerry conceded, and he was just seriously pissed off. I mean, you know, because there, there were still, as I recall, 186,000 provisional ballots in Ohio that had never been opened. And, and Gore all, won. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when you look at the actual vote down in Florida, well, that took a whole year for the media consortium to count all the Florida votes. But yeah, Al Gore actually won. And, uh, you know, that was uh, acknowledged by The New York Times and The Washington Post. I'm really torn. And that's why I tossed the question out there, because, you know, Bush did so much damage to the United States and he harmed so many people. And he, and he actually caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. So far, Trump has only cost arguably 70,000 deaths, although the, you know, the New York Times also says that that's badly undercounted and there's probably 30,000 additional deaths that you know, we should attribute to coronavirus but didn't get attributed because you know, it was heart attacks and strokes and things that were caused by coronavirus. Anyhow, Ari, thank you for the call. Spot on. It's a, it's a tough choice to make. And then I suppose you throw Reagan into the mix, who started this whole thing, right? We wouldn't have Trump or Bush if it wasn't for Reagan. And now it gets really complicated. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So who's our worst president? Trump? Bush? Reagan? Buchanan? We'll be back. Alan in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Alan, your thoughts? It's a dead heat between the two leaning more towards Trump. It's If you look at it like trains... George Bush was a local train making frequent stops to bringing the country down on its knees. And Donald Trump is an express train. Well, he, you know, Uh, nine months from now, we may all change our opinion because he may be taking us right straight into full-blown fascism. I believe he will if he's reelected. He's going to become, you know, Viktor Orban, basically. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, it's a matter of both are sociopaths, but Trump is emotionally unstable, which makes him a wild card. Everything that Bush did had a calculated move to achieve an end, whereas uh, Trump is Which you could argue made it worse. Unsta- hmm? I mean, you could argue that that made it worse. Bush knew what he was doing. Trump is just but, flailing uh, about, lurching from advisor to advisor. But there was a foundation that Obama was able to work with to help rebuild things, whereas what we've got right now is buckshot that's perforating pretty much every level of the geopolitical system in the country, and that's harder to clean up. You're going after each individual buckshot to heal the country, whereas what... Yeah. Bush was You're right. Doing, I mean, you know, uh, Trump has repealed over 70 over 70 laws, environmental laws. Deborah in Minneapolis. Hey, Deborah, what's on your mind today? 
Well, I believe that uh, Bush was maybe the worst president because we don't learn from our history. And Pelosi said it was under the table to impeach him. And so did Obama. Look into the future. We don't know our past. We've been dumbed down by our education system. We, we don't. Yes, that's how come our, these people okay. are in power. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Great one, Deborah. Thank you. Michael in Denver, you want to toss in a quick vote? I think we have to look back all the way to uh, Richard Nixon for sure, and it's a chain that's been forged. I like to call it the the chain of uh, the new chain of American slavery by the Republican uh, crime syndicate that we've had in this country since uh, certainly since Richard Nixon and uh, probably even before that. So uh, everything that the, any any progressive any democratic thing that's ever been done is certainly anti-fascism, and that's what all these guys are about, is fascism, Tom. Yeah, well, when Nixon in 1968 blew up the Vietnam peace talks in order to prevent Hubert Humphrey from winning that election, and, of course, Nixon beat Humphrey in that election. Humphrey was uh, LBJ's VP. Uh, you know, he committed treason. Nixon committed treason. Yes, and then, absolutely. Uh, and then Ronald Reagan said, hey, that's a great you know, playbook. We'll do the same thing. And, and Reagan did the same thing with Iran that Nixon did with Vietnam. And, uh, you know, we're off to the races. Good point, Michael. Thank you. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? This question about who is a worse president, Trump or George Bush. And to tell you the mm -hmm. truth, um, I don't think Trump, we should do any equivocation because, right, for one thing, George Bush would have never dreamed of allowing American on American violence, okay? He believed in his own mythos, all right, at least. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has no problem with American on American violence, and this detriment that he represents is not limited to just him. Like, we let. Pe people like Pete Navarro, I don't know if you heard his interview over the weekend, and Mike Pompeo, we left it, well, we let them off the hook. And I'm telling you right now, I mean, these guys believe in a philosophy that is absolutely imperiling the world, all right? For one thing, they seem to believe that China is um, Al-Qaeda. You can get into like a um, name-calling thing with them. But China is a modern corporate scientific country. In other words, they do things basically the way we do, all right? And they, they are vulnerable to the same things we are, and they excel at the same things we do. All right? So basically, name-calling is not going to work. These guys are going to end up bumbling us into World War III. All right. That's Trump and his minions, his cadre, if you will. That's my and, fear. Um, I don't think he's going to bumble us, though, Dave. I, I think that, you know, Donald Trump back in 2012, when Barack Obama was running for reelection as president, Trump repeatedly tweeted any minute now, Obama, you know, I'm, my words, not his, but, you know, I'm paraphrasing any minute now, Obama's going to declare a war with Iran in order to distract us from his bad performance and get himself reelected because of the rally around effect when when you've got a wartime president. And Trump actually believes that. He believes that presidents do that, um, probably looking back at what Richard Nixon did in, in uh, 72. Richard Nixon did exactly that. He extended the Vietnam War just to get himself reelected. And Roger Stone was one of his advisors at that time. And Roger Stone is good buddies with Donald Trump, which is probably where he got the idea from. But uh, Trump believes that, you know, presidents do that, and some of them have. And George W. Bush did the same thing in, 2000, in the election of 2004. And so I'm fully expecting Donald Trump to try to start a war sometime in the next three months. Aren't you? 
Well, yeah, one of the scariest things I heard on your show was from the guest, Richard Clark, who just lively said, you know, wars start by accident. Well, the Trump administration's an accident waiting to happen. Look, oh, yeah. um, also, I called in, uh, Corky's right, uh, I called in one time, we were talking climate change, and I was talking about the Asian longhorn tick. Due to climate change, that, that tick comes from Hubei. Every year in Hubei, you know, uh, which is uh, Wuhan, they have um, uh, HFTS outbreaks, and HFTS goes from ticks to humans, and then humans pass it one to another. And it is a hemorrhagic fever, and it is 30% lethality. Now, we are eventually Whoa. going to experience this in America. We are going to experience the outbreaks they have annually all right, um, on HFTS. And it is, um, it's re- related to climate change. Now, since it came from Hubei, I could see um, Trump saying it came from a lab, and I could see China really escalating. They're going to start following the Russian model, and the Russian model is a Western model of warfare that they learned out fighting Nazi Germany. And it's going to get really, really, really bad. I mean, for all we know, Trump's getting his intelligence from Russia. Uh, remember he just said in a news thing he couldn't say how he got the information from Wuhan? Probably getting it from the Russians. Well, he had a meeting with Putin a couple of weeks ago. I suppose anything's possible. Yeah, it's, it's grim stuff. Dave, thank you for the call. Tom Harbin here with you. So Jared Kushner was on Fox News saying, well, American Bridge just sent out a thing about this. They said Donald Trump and his family of grifters have zero credibility. They point out that we just passed a million Americans with confirmed cases of this virus. We have more deaths in six weeks than in 21 years of the Vietnam War. And Jared Kushner goes on TV and says, this is a great success story. I mean, we shipped tons of medical equipment to China at Trump's direction. He said we were going to have 27 million tests by the end of March. No, not so much. We're just about to hit 5 million. And that's 5 million in this entire period of time. We should be doing 5 million tests a day. That's crazy. It turns out Trump was given more than a dozen briefings on the coronavirus threat in January and February. In the presidential daily brief, remember that one that was given George W. Bush that said bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States back in August of 2001? Well, same story. This is what Republican presidents apparently do, is they ignore risks, they ignore warnings, while they shovel tax cuts to billionaires and their buddies, often the same thing. And in fact, this presidential briefing was also shared with cabinet secretaries. They all knew. This was back in January. They all knew what was coming. They knew how it was coming. They knew how it was most likely to play out. And what did Trump do? He ignored it. And then he spent all of February saying, oh, it's going to magically go away on February 26th. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero. Later in the day, it's going to be like a miracle. It'll disappear on March 10th. Just stay calm. It'll go away, said Donald Trump. I mean, the CIA was all over this. They were tracking this in China, in Europe, in Latin America. In mid-February, Trump fired his acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire. Why? Because McGuire allowed one of his employees, a senior analyst, to brief members of Congress, to testify before Congress, 
that the intelligence agencies of the United States had determined that in this upcoming election, the 2020 election, Russia was once again interfering with our election and was going to interfere even more and, quote, had developed a preference for Trump. So Trump fires his director of national intelligence at the same time that the intelligence agencies are saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, there's something going on here with the coronavirus. It's just mind boggling. Meanwhile, you have four now state collectives to deal with the coronavirus. The, the fourth one is uh, here out, out west, uh, Oregon, Washington State, California, Nevada, and uh, oh, in Colorado. That's right. Oh, Utah. Utah? Any, one or the other. Yeah, I think it's Colorado. Anyhow, this is to get personal protective equipment, and they're doing it specifically to hide it from the federal government, to hide their purchases from the federal government. And they're using a more science-based regional approach to when to open up the states. The Trump administration has rolled back federal regulations on environmental policy over 74 different laws. Major pieces of legislation have been rolled back by the federal administration, all of which protect us from pollution and things that are profitable to these big corporations, but not to us. The whole sanctuary city thing, major policy disagreements, all of these things, states are starting to work together and they're saying, you know, we don't need the federal government to do this stuff. We can do it ourselves. Meanwhile, over at the federal government, the Interstate Highway Fund is totally out of cash. We haven't had a major infrastructure bill in over a decade. The American dream is you know, dying. And at the same time, the Fed is bailing out everybody in sight. A new Federal Reserve program, they're going to be providing $500 billion to large companies with no requirement that they keep people on the payroll, no requirement that they try to reduce unemployment or offer any kind of benefits or anything. Basically, here, here's the money. And this is incredible. On March 23rd, The Fed passed out $4 trillion in credit to big corporations. Then on April 9th, they provided another $2.3 trillion. The Fed now has $6 trillion of corporate debt on its balance sheets. These companies, in one week at the end of March, this is from today's New York Times, by the way, a piece by William Cohen, who is... He was an official in one of the administrations and was a Republican. I think he was in, um, in Obama's administration. It might have been Clinton. But anyhow, the Fed has said basically they're willing to buy anything, including equities. Six trillion dollars on their balance sheet. In one week, Cohen writes, at the end of March, 49 companies issued $107 billion in investment grade bonds, the single largest week of issuance on record. Now, how can companies be issuing bonds, in other words, borrowing money right now? when everything is frozen up because the Fed is buying them. Yum Brands, for example, this is a company that owns KFC and Pizza Hut. They just issued $600 million in new debt. That was on March 30th. On April 1st, Carnival issued $4 billion in new debt. Who bought it? The Fed. This is why the stock market is going up. This is creating what's called moral hazard. Companies can continue to behave irresponsibly Six trillion dollars on the Fed's balance sheet. Continue to behave irresponsibly and nothing comes out of it. Howard Marks is the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. Bill Cohen writes or William Cohen writes about. He said, and I quote, this is a capitalist, right? He said, quote, capitalism without bankruptcy is like Catholicism without hell. Markets work best when participants have a healthy fear of loss. It shouldn't be the role of the Fed or the federal government to eradicate that fear of loss. 
And then Bill Ackman, this hedge fund, hedge fund manager, he placed back on March 3rd a $27 million bet that the Fed would intervene and support all these companies that have been behaving so irresponsibly all these years, the stock buybacks and everything. His bet paid off on March 23rd and gave him a profit of $2.6 billion. One guy. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Capitalism is dead. It's socialism for the rich and screw you for everybody else. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I wanted to just uh, share with you this story about what's going on in the red states right now. The blue states in particular have been really good about state employees having good pension programs. In some red states, state employees do have pension programs and others they don't. But in blue states, the deal, the way the deal is negotiated is we're going to pay you X. We're going to pay you $100 a week. And just to pull a number out of the air, we're going to pay you 100 bucks. But we're only going to give you 95 of it, and we're going to hold $5 back and put it into a pension fund. And when you retire, you'll be able to draw a pension. And they have pension fund administrators who do this. You know, they invest the money, all that kind of stuff. And we're looking at a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion that has been deducted from employees' paychecks across the United States, especially in blue states, that was actually never saved. This is pretty breathtaking. Now, David Sirota has a newsletter called TMI. Not sure exactly what TMI stands for, and he doesn't say on his, uh, on his masthead, dispatches from the dystopia, right? Well, whatever. Uh, too much information, TMI. And he went through this yesterday. First of all, you've got Donald Trump saying, why should the people and taxpayers of America be bailing out poorly run states like Illinois, as example, and cities? In all cases, Democrat run and managed when most of the other states are not looking for bailout help. I'm opening discussing anything but just asking. Right. This is Trump. And of course, what we know is that red states take money, you know, way out of proportion. You know, for every dollar that a red state sends to Washington, D.C., they might get two, three, in some cases, three or even four dollars back from the federal government. Whereas blue states, you know, when New York sends a dollar to New York, they get 90 cents back. California gets, you know, 80 some odd cents back. So Trump states, these are red states, red states now face a combined $519 billion gap between what they owe their workers and what they have saved. In fact, the 12 worst funded pension fund systems in the country are Kentucky. It's $42 billion has been taken from employees and not saved. You know, and I'll tell you in a minute what they're doing with that money. South Carolina, $25 billion. Pennsylvania, $66 billion. Mississippi, $16 billion. Arizona, $27 billion. North Dakota, $2 billion. Indiana, $17 billion. Michigan, $32 billion. Louisiana, $18 billion. Alabama, $15 billion. Montana, Kansas, Alaska, all uh, just a little t- less than $10 billion. So, for example, in Arizona, 
Arizona has a $27 billion shortfall. This follows Arizona's Republican lawmakers passing income tax cuts and corporate tax cuts. Arizona, just in 2018, the corporate subsidies and tax breaks cost the state more than $600 million, more than twice what the state owed its pensioners. So the state of Arizona owes $300 million for one year to its pensioners, and instead of taking $300 million and putting it in the bank for those people, they gave tax breaks and corporate subsidies to the tune of $600 million. South Carolina, $25 billion shortfall after state officials funneled large portions of retiree savings to high-fee Wall Street firms. Those fees have skyrocketed to more than $450 million a year. South Carolina is paying Wall Street banks $450 million a year to sit on the money from their pension funds. The state's current governor is calling for the closure of the state's pension funds as he pushes for a new package of massive tax cuts. This is from David Sirota. Kentucky, this is, of course, uh, Mitch McConnell's state. This is what started all this. Run by a Republican governor until five months ago, has the single worst funded pension system in America, faces a $42 billion shortfall. While shortchanging its pension system, Kentucky has handed out huge corporate subsidies, and Republican lawmakers have tried to hide details of those subsidies. So what's going on now? Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are talking about states going bankrupt. Well, states basically don't go bankrupt the way that the towns do. They can default on their bonds, which would be a terrible thing. But really what they're talking about is trashing these pension funds. A half a trillion dollars that was literally taken out of the paychecks of working people in lieu of pay. The people had negotiated for $100 pay. They got 95 bucks. The five bucks was supposed to go into the pension fund. The state took that money and gave it as tax cuts to billionaires and big corporations. In red state after red state after red state, David Sirota says, to understand what this means in practice, imagine you were offered a job and you signed a contract accepting less pay in exchange for your boss promising that they would pay a specific set of retirement benefits. Then imagine that your boss simply refused to put money in your retirement account for years and instead gave that money away to his rich friends. Then imagine that when you found out about the situation, your boss turned around and said he wasn't going to put the money in there. Instead, he's just going to tear up your contract. That's what's happening with these red state governors. That's what, Donald Trump, that's what Donald Trump is now pushing. And they're using this whole crisis we're going through right now as the excuse to push this, to legalize this theft. They're trying to balance the books by tearing up workers' contracts. And this is a deliberate effort to drive the getaway car in a robbery, says David Sirota. And he's absolutely right. This is just so wrong. We are being robbed. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, David, uh, what's on your mind today? Well, you need to add Oklahoma to your list of underfunded pension plans. For decades, the Democratic Party legislature has said, Uh okay, we need to fund these plans. And instead, we've had tax cuts. We had the uh, tax cuts from, God, I can't even think of her name now, Ann, and then uh, Brad Henry gave us tax cuts, and he was a Democrat, and then we had Frank Keating tax cuts, with the Tyrell tax cuts, and so, of course, we're in a hole, and now that oil and gas is, is tanked, we're double in the hole, and they're trying to change the compacts with the gambling with the Indians, because they cannot mention the fact that the whole idea of progressive income tax, when my sister 
went up to protest as a, as a teacher, they told them anybody that mentioned the progressive income tax, they would not show that segment on air. And the whole raids on pensions began in Oklahoma. They had city service oil and gas company back when, in the how? 70s. Tell me about it. Okay, my dad worked for city service lifer. The oil and gas industry, at the time, they overfunded the pension. And at the time, the CEO was part of the pension. The guy that ran the pension was part of the pension. Everybody was a member of the pension. And overfunding the pension meant that the money would go to everybody once it got distributed. Well, along came T-Bone Pickens. They said, oh, there's all this money lying around that's not working. Mm. Kind of like the plot out of the other people's money. Mm-hmm. And they uh, went after it. Well, they this is where they started the poison pill thing and all that. And about that time, the old guard said, okay, well, we're retiring. And they had the new guard come in. So they started some bleeding money because they'd switched over and had this division called Sitgo, which was their gasoline products and refineries and say service oil and oil and gas was specializing with oil and gas and we were still acquiring gas properties that i've since been had the distinction of undoing my father's work <laughs> as a temp employee now mind you i'm a throwaway employee i'm been a designer and uh, working as a contractor and <laughs> needless to say i'm i've been kicked out of the middle class this this whole thing started, though, in mm. that, and you were right, Ronald Reagan, they formalized it and said, well, this is all legal. And that was about the yeah. time that Armand Hammer came in yeah. and went after, and, of course, Occidental eventually yep. got it. And the joys of Aetna, that's, yeah. the, that's the insurance my mother has. And they won't give her hearing aids, and they won't give her, and they won't let her fix her teeth. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> is she on uh, Medicare Advantage? Is that what you're talking about, David? Yeah. They, well, Aetna switched her over to Aetna Medicare, oh, what do they call it? The Medicare Replacement. And they've, I've called them up yeah, and they said, yeah. well. It's called Medicare we, Advantage. They can't, they can't insure her dental. They said, oh, we will give you $1,500 coupons that my sister tried and nobody would take them. And they said, oh, well, you can get hearing aids, but we'll, right. we'll reimburse you $2,000. I said, well, that's just a rebate. That's not a benefit. Right. Yeah, it's all, it's all a scam. It's amazing. David, thank you for the call. <music> Meanwhile, FEMA is still seizing masks. And not just FEMA, apparently, but, uh, you know, this is coming apparently out of Jared Kushner's efforts in the White House. And in my opinion, the fact that this isn't a huger scandal just boggles my mind. I mean, can you imagine if Obama was hurting red states in order to help blue states? It would be the only story that Fox News talked about all day, every day for weeks. And this is huge. I mean, this is the executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration. The VA, the admin, you know, the part of the VA that actually provides health care. This from uh, in the Daily Mail by Lauren Edmonds. 
As doctors scramble to stay ahead of a global health crisis, the executive in charge of Veterans Health Administration revealed a shipment containing millions of face masks were diverted by FEMA. Veterans Health Administration, which contains 1,255 facilities and serves more than 9 million Americans, suffered a crushing blow. An appeal by Veterans Secretary Robert Wilkie to FEMA caused the agency to distribute 500,000 masks to the VA this week. The VA had bought 5 million. They got intercepted by the Trump administration and, you know, which the VA is part of too, technically, and redirected to the strategic national stockpile, which Jared Kushner is in charge of. Continuing the article here from the Daily Mail, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who has become a target of President Trump over her, quote, complaints, that's a word from Trump, and bogged down by anti-lockdown protests, said in March that vendors contracted by her state were told, quote, not to send stuff to Michigan on orders from the White House. She told WWJFM, quote, when the federal government told us we needed to go at ourselves on medical supplies, we started procuring every item we could get our hands on. But what I've gotten back is that vendors with whom we had contracts are now being told not to send stuff here to Michigan. She later added that Michigan's order had been canceled or delayed and was redirected to the federal government. Similarly, hospitals in seven states told the Los Angeles Times that female officials were arriving without notice and seizing medical supplies. Maybe this is why, you know, states like Nebraska and South Dakota are just, you know, hey, keep the meatpacking plants going. It's all good. You know, so few people have died. So a lot of people are getting sick. It doesn't matter because, you know, we've got plenty of medical supplies. We're not going to have the crisis New York has. What they don't realize is that what they don't have is plenty of beds. This goes on, uh, the Los An- this is from the Los Angeles Times. The federal government is quietly seizing orders, leaving medical providers across the country in the dark about where the material is going. Well, you know, it hasn't shown up anywhere other than in Jared Kushner's basement, right? I mean, the federal emergency supply, that's, he's responsible for that, or at least that's my understanding. And that's where it's all going. It hasn't been distributed to any place yet. Because the crisis is only happening in blue states, right? New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York. Wait until it hits the red states. Back to this article by the, by the LA Times by Noam Levy, a staff writer. Hospital and clinic officials in seven states described the seizures in interviews over the past week. FEMA is not publicly reporting the acquisitions despite the outlays of millions of dollars of taxpayer money, nor has the administration detailed how it decides which supplies to seize and where to reroute them. A California hospital official who asked not to be identified for fear of retaliation from the White House said, quote, we can't get any answers. In Florida, a large medical system saw an order for thermometers taken away. That's a red state. What's going on with that? And officials at a system in Massachusetts were unable to determine where their order of face masks went. Peace Health, a 10-hospital system in Washington, Oregon, and Alaska, had a shipment of testing supplies seized recently. It's incredibly frustrating, said Richard DiCarlo, the system's chief operating officer. In response to a request from the Los Angeles Times, a FEMA representative said the agency has developed a system for identifying needed supplies from vendors and distributing them equitably. But the agency has refused to provide any details 
about how these determinations are made or why it's choosing to seize some supply orders and not others. Administration officials also will not say what supplies are going to what states. Jose Camacho, who heads the Texas Association of Community Health Centers, says his group was trying to purchase a small order of just 20,000 masks when his supplier reported that the order had been taken. Amazing. Frank in Staten Island, New York. Hey, Frank, what's up? I just want to add a caveat to the thing about the pension funds. A couple of years ago, the Jersey State Unions negotiated with Chris Christie to demand that he fund the pension systems at the appropriate level. He, he just didn't do it. He just didn't right. fund the pension systems at that level. So I guess the caveat, you know, I was looking at this kind of stuff that so many states are so misfunded, like like, like uh, Kentucky. I, there was a story about Kentucky that they're like 18% funded or something like that. And that's yeah. where the Mitch McConnell said that's where his state would probably be the one that would take advantage of this thing. How do you get them to say, look, you made a, a bargain with us. This is the bargain. How do you get them to Kentucky, say? Kentucky has a $42 billion shortfall, which is a mind-boggling amount of money when you consider it was taken, you know, $10 a day, basically, out of people's paychecks. Frank, this goes back to the 1980s. Prior to the 1980s, prior to the Reagan administration, pensions were considered liabilities, legal liabilities. And so if you were a company or a state and you had a pension fund, you had to list that fund as a liability on your balance sheet. If you went through bankruptcy, the employees had first claim to whatever money the corporation had to reimburse them for their pensions. It was pretty strong, and governors could not, you know, if they failed to fund their pensions, they were breaking the law. Ronald Reagan reversed that law, and in fact, not just did away with it, but literally reversed it so that pension funds are now booked on corporate balance sheets as assets rather than liabilities. So if you've got a billion-dollar company with a hundred-million-dollar pension fund, under the old accounting, that would be a company worth $900 million, and the additional $100 million that makes it a billion-dollar company is money that's owed to the employees, and the company can't touch that, so it's only a $900 million company. Now, under the post-Reagan way of looking at it, that billion-dollar company has a $100 million pension fund. It's now a company worth $1.1 billion. And so if Carl Icahn wants to buy it and strip it, he gets to put all $1.1 billion in his pocket. And the people who, got, who had the pensions, as the employees of TWA and Eastern found out when he did just this, got screwed. And airlines started this game in a big way back in the 80s and early 90s. And now it's spread across every industry. And the, and the Republican governors have been in on this for 35 years, which is how Kentucky racked up a $42 billion shortfall, because it's not a legal obligation any longer like it used to be under federal law. And that's what we need to do is we need to change that federal law, Frank, and, and go back to those times. Thanks for the call. John in Portland, Oregon. Hey, John, what's up? couple things. I was furloughed on Friday. I went from being an essential worker to a furloughed worker, so I'm dealing with that. But in dealing with that, I know that you're a reader, and I consider myself one as well with history. The Civilian Conservation Corps, an FDR program during the Great Depression. Full disclosure, at this point, I have zero faith in the federal government, but if the western states, California, Oregon, Washington, and now as I understand Nevada and Colorado as well, what do you think if they all got together and said that, you know, at the end of all this, what we're going to do to help relieve people and to help, you know, relieve wildfires and all the other things that are going on with our environment, 
is to create just a, a state's version, a state-sized version of the Civilian Conservation Corps like we had back in the Depression. What would you think of that? I think it's a great idea, John. And this is basically the principle of the Green New Deal is what we're going to do is we're going to create a massive jobs program, one that is going to not only put people back to work, not only rebuild the infrastructure of America so that we have good communications and good transportation and good systems, but is going to do so in a way that is carbon neutral or carbon negative and thus will help reduce the probability of disastrous climate change going forward. So, yes, Colorado and Nevada just joined Washington State, Oregon, and California in a Western state's essentially compact, in this case, to decide how and when and under what circumstances and using what metrics they're going to reopen their economies. I suspect that that's going to provide a basis for something much larger than that. And John, I'm I'm very sorry to hear that you got furloughed. This is a tough time all the way around. We will make it through, but not without some pain. I got an email. Well, this one isn't from Stephen Moore, but Stephen Moore is now working for FreedomWorks, which is, you know, FreedomWorks and Americans for Prosperity were the two groups that were supporting the Tea Party, you know, funded and started by the Koch brothers and their friends and their other billionaire buddies. These are billionaire funded groups that operate in the interests of billionaires. There was a webinar. FreedomWorks Committee to Unleash Prosperity. It's a webinar grading governors on their opening of the state's economies. And Brian Kemp of Georgia is on this webinar. Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, is on this webinar. Kevin Stitt, the governor of Oklahoma, is on this webinar. And it's being moderated by Adam Brandon, the president of FreedomWorks, and Stephen Moore, co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. I think they mean unleash viruses, unleash deaths. An incredible video, by the way that I saw on Twitter. I retweeted it. In fact, uh, you can find it in my Twitter timeline where this guy is in the Michigan rally where the Michigan militia and the Klan were out there, you know, and the uh, Michigan Nazis. He's standing there, you know, filming his own hand. He's giving people a finger as they walk by and he's yelling, you know, God hates uh, dip bleeps. It starts with an S word, you know, and F you. And he's, he's yelling F you and giving, but he's doing it very politely. And occasionally somebody tries to debate him, you know, and it's just hysterical. I really recommend you check it out. But this is, this is like people are starting to talk back. And, you know, we've got these billionaires with Freedom Works promoting this stuff. You got Brian Kemp, Kim Reynolds, Kevin Stitt, the governors of Georgia, Iowa, and Oklahoma, respectively, uh, doing this webinar. It's amazing. It's amazing. I almost signed up for it. And then I thought, you know, I got better things to do with my time. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.